Jesus Christ, what the hell's the matter with me? <sighs> Fuck it. Oh, God. All right, here we go. Don't, please don't use any of that. I'm, I mean it. Please don't use any of that. All right. all you movie junkies and cinephiles it's time for the sls cast with your hosts matt and tim and welcome one and all to episode 137 of the sls cast yes ladies and gentlemen this would be the boar model episode of the sls cast because it turns out that the Bohr model with an innermost electron that would be orbiting just below the speed of light that atom would be z equaling 137 I have absolutely no fucking idea what all that Z shit and Bormont whatever, but apparently it's still 137. And with that wonderful bit of physics news, I guess, I of course would be Matt. And of course coming to us from the Sony vault in Japan, where he is currently counting 8 point no. Yes, 8.215 trillion yen by hand. It would be, of course, Tim. Tim. Yes. Tim. Tim. That was Tim, a lot Tim, of Tim. revenue for 2015 thus far. It, it really is. I mean, yeah. that's not the case for Greece. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Sony could buy Greece. <laughs> it's a fire sale. Is it a Greece fire sale? Oh. All right. How you been, sir? Good. How about yourself? I have been very good myself. Actually, we got. I'm going to jump a little bit ahead and move around. Um, I, I had a hole in my ceiling for a while because the air duct in my attic, uh, the plastic had busted around it. And so it created a gap in the insulation, which created condensation and thus dripping and eventually... Is this a double a meaning for something? Is this, sure, are you really sure. talking about a cavity... Of some sort? Exactly, yes. Cavity, too. And so I had a big hole in the ceiling. We had to have it cut out to figure out what was going on. And eventually, we get it figured out. We need to have the duct replaced. Great, good. And we have some guys come over. And and this one guy sees my rig as soon as he comes in the house. And he's like, dude, do you sing and stuff? And I'm like, no, I would not inflict that on the world like that. But... I do a movie podcast. So we were talking about that and everything. And then it turns out he actually is a Latino rapper here in Houston. And um, so his day job until, you know, he scores it big is he does construction. So I watched a couple of his videos on YouTube and everything. And he, you know, listened to a little bit of the show and and all that good stuff. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Taz El Calajero. And he's actually at Taz El Calajero on Twitter. And he said he was going to have his uh, girlfriend start listening to our show because she loves movies. And so I subscribed to his channel on YouTube and stuff like that. And it was just kind of cool. I I didn't, you know. So now we have a new follower on Twitter and stuff. And we're reaching out to the Hispanic community now. 
I think that is just amazing. Shh, don't go any further with that, Matt. Just, just leave it be. Leave it be. They're going to start calling you the Donald Trump of movie podcasting if you touch that. What? Nothing. <laughs> Expanding our audience is bad? No, no. I was trying to make a political joke that obviously didn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, see, I don't have Donald Trump's hair in order to catch things that might go over my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's got to be bad when you, ha- when you own a toupee or you wear a toupee that the first thought that comes to mind is that, oh shit, I got to shoot that right now, you know? Well, it, it I got to be honest well. with you. I don't think it's a toupee. Really? I truly do not believe it is a toupee. I, I truly believe that is his real hair. I, uh, I, I am not trying to say that it looks good, uh, nor that she should have it. I do believe that the man is actually bald. Um, but he has literally grown his comb over in such a fashion that it is so ridiculous as to look like a toupee. God, this is disgusting, man. Yeah. Oh, so I texted you something uh, last Saturday night, if you remember. Uh, you you texted quite a many things. I texted you many things that we will only go into one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> let's see here. Um, let's see. Uh, um, is it the hashtag thing that you sent me on, but today? Oh no was, was no the hashtag no no not that one. See, I'm no. trying to be nice to you. It was so it wasn't that one. Uh, let's see here. Um, let's see. It wasn't about. It's not about Joe Dirt, right? No, no, it wasn't about that. No atrocity. Okay, we're going back. We're going. Is it the um, observation about uh, justice in your book? No, no, that no, that, no, that is not, no, it's not. No, no, see, is... see, this is why I don't think we can really ever truly do texts from Tim. But uh, let's see here. We've got. Um, um, is is it uh, got anything to do with Smurfs? It it has nothing to do with do with Smurfs, but it has something to do with uh, Mexican food and German food. And oh yes, and single yes. ladies, or they could be single. I don't know, but it's hordes of women. I find love to like go out and have girl time at Mexican restaurants and German restaurants. It's something I've been studying and noticing over the past 10 years of my life. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. What I'd like to discuss on the show, why groups of women go to Mexican and German restaurants. And you said, oh, I said, hilarious. We must do that. I have the most amazing story regarding that very thing. But before we get into your story, I mean, have mm. you noticed that as well? Like, you go to a Mexican restaurant with yes. your family, and then you noticed, oh, man, the neighborhood moms, they just finished Bunko, so they, they're going to come over and have a couple <laughs> margaritas and some chips. Yes. As a matter of fact, that uh, about a month and a half ago, that was my wife. She went out to go... Uh, meet up with some other friends of hers who are now moms and they don't get to hang out very often. So she's like, I want to do a girls night out thing. And I'm like, of course go knock yourself out. And where do they go? El Palenque and get shit faced on margaritas and then proceed to go bar hopping after that. So to other Mexican restaurants, right? Because once you go to a Mexican restaurant, you have to continue going to Mexican restaurants. I can, I can, I can only guess. (laughs) Or go bar hopping between Mexican restaurants and German restaurants. That's a very full load right there, I've got to say. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. 
<sighs> well, that didn't feel as enthralling as I was expecting it to be. But hey, it's an observation nonetheless. I did you want me to tell the story now? Oh, or? I thought that was the story. Oh yeah, that, okay, no, go that for wasn't it. the story. That was just my own observation oh, cool. to, to back up your observation. Yeah. You know, the, the correlation is, you know, equaling causation in this particular instance. Sure. Uh, all right. So, yeah, <clears throat> about 15, 16 years ago, I was living in Dallas and I was, um, I had, aunt, my aunts came into town um, and one of my aunts had brought um, my cousin with her because he wasn't quite old enough to stay home but of course he wasn't quite old enough uh he wasn't quite old enough to stay at home but he was too old for a babysitter and so they my stepmom at the time had asked me hey would you mind you know taking you know your cousin out and hanging out and do whatever for us like oh sure why not so um they're like okay well we're gonna be at this you know, Mexican joint. Of course they're going to be at a Mexican joint. Why? Because they're women who are without their husbands and or do not have husbands. Uh, so where are they going to go? Mexican restaurants. Just like you, you know, just like your observation. And uh, so they're like, we're going to be here and, um, you know, can you go ahead and drop us off and then pick us up later? I was like, oh, sure, whatever. It's no problem. So I go ahead and drop him off. And then, of course, now it's just me and the cousin. And so I take him over um, to this place called Man Event, and it it had a, it has pool and bowling and laser tag and video games all indoors. So we go and do that for a few hours, and then I finally get the call to you know, hey, come on and pick us up. So I'm like, all right, great. So I go ahead and pick them up, and my stepmom and my aunts are shit faced. I mean. Three fucking bedding sections to the wind. Fuck sheets. I mean bedding sections to the wind. And they decide when we finally, when I get them home, they're just laughing and cutting up. Um, my parents uh, had had this jacuzzi tub. And so they decided that it would be the just most funniest thing ever if they all got into the jacuzzi tub and so they they decided to that's what they got they decided to do it and by god they took their drunk selves stripped down to nothing and got into this tub together and of course they've got the bubble bath going and they think that something should be you know done to commemorate this occasion and so they call me in, and I'm like, is everything all right? What the hell's going on? And they go, Matthew, take a picture. Why do I want to take a picture of my naked aunts and naked stepmother in a bubble bathtub where there's just not enough fucking bubbles? There's not. There was never enough bubbles ever of this. To, to, so what can I say? I did it. Are you about to send me picture. that picture? <laughs> are you just about to send me that picture is that is that what is about to happen i'm waiting for the no. noise to happen and i'm gonna no, see uh, apparently apparently my father uh has ended up with this picture um and i don't know what he has ever done with it or what have you but yeah so i got to be scarred for life thanks to women and mexican and or german restaurants well i think you need to bring this story up 
uh, drunkenly, of course, uh, mm. whenever you guys go to a Mexican restaurant, which I would imagine it would be pretty soon since there is one on every fucking corner in your area. Which is a good thing. I kind of, my, my tone, I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I'm recording in a new environment. I'm a little off, like, I, well, I'm always off. But, you know, my tone, it, it, it came out negatively. It, having Mexican restaurants on every corner is a damn good thing. And I All like right, that, Mr. Trump, back off. You're fine. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, oh, no. If I was Trump, there would be no apologizing for Mexican restaurants. This is true. This is true. Just, you know, your next phone call would be to La Raza, and that would be the end of it. <laughs> so, anyway, now that we've managed to inadvertently, I think, alienate yet another segment of our audience. What do you want to do now? <laughs> <laughs> News of the weird? <laughs> Um, well, okay. Well, we do have an email or that too that we need to we need to get to. And uh, Diana um, sent us another email, so thank you very much, Diana. Also, oh, and just another quick shout out to our friend Johnny White Trash. Um, I had an absolute blast talking with him. I wanted to have a discussion with him about his ultimate letdown of Doom, and that careened into an over two hour conversation. And we just said, I, I had a complete blast. So thanks again, dude. That was awesome. Uh, let's see here. So Diana writes to us. She sends an email to the show at slscast.com. She says, hi, guys. I really liked your laughter intro. Very whimsical. I, I didn't know what the hell that was about, but I'm glad that you enjoyed it. You're, you're I welcome, Diana. I, I did that for you. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, listened to the toilet talk while actually sitting on the throne, which I found amusing. The ultimate letdown mega fart intro got my cat to stop grooming and also listen to the show. Now you have two cat fans. <clears throat> I also am a fan of both fracking cats, by the way. I see what she did there. What's up, fracking cat? And of course, we can't leave out Miranda, so, you know. Uh, keep up the good work. Love the show. Agree with the Harry Potter movies, but I love watching Alan Rickman do anything. Cheers, Diana. Well, thank you very much, Diana. I appreciate it. Once again, proving uh, why we bother paying for an email account so that Diana can write us. So keep keep, keep doing that. <laughs> uh, all right. So now that we got through the emails... Um, Let's do some news of the weird. Sounds good. From Newsmax.com. And I do not have any direct attribution here, so we're just going to go with it. In Japan, robots run hotel from front desk to bellhops. And the actual receptionist that greets you is eerily freaky. Here, I'm going to go ahead and link to this article here for you. Tim, so that you can see this wonderful picture that is provided right at the top uh, as soon as you click on that link there. I don't okay. know that I would want to stay in a hotel where this is what greets me. But it says, 
A hotel in Japan, aptly called Weird Hotel, is, quote, manned, unquote, almost totally by robots to save labor costs. From the front desk to the bellhop, that's an automated trolley taking luggage up to the room. The English-speaking receptionist is a vicious-looking dinosaur, and the one speaking Japanese is a female humanoid with blinking lashes. If you want, quote, if you want to check in, push one, end quote, the dinosaur says. The visitor still has to punch a button on the desk and type in information on a touch panel. Hideo Sawada, who runs the hotel in Sasebo in southwestern Japan as part of an amusement park, insists using robots is not a gimmick, but a serious effort to utilize technology and achieve efficiency, according to the Associated uh, Press. Uh, Hen Na Hotel, as it is called in Japanese, was shown to reporters on Wednesday, uh, complete with robot demonstrations ahead of its opening to the public on Friday. And this was from last Friday, the 17th of July. Another feature of the hotel is the use of facial recognition technology instead of the standard electronic keys by registering the digital image of the guest's face during check-in. The reason... Robots aren't good at finding keys if people happen to lose them. Oh my god, the video just got to the robot dinosaur bellhop. This is ridiculous. Seriously. This is a real thing, eh? It's totally legit. Really? I, I highly recommend that you go to Newsmax.com um, and check this out. It is uh, There is a video, as was just evidenced by Tim... So you must, yeah. It is. It is completely weird. I would. Would you stay at a hotel like this? Fuck. Tim? Would you stay? No, man. <laughs> okay, for one thing. Okay, observation time. Um, yeah. So, literally, there are the the three concierge people is a tiny ass robot that looks like it's from, I don't know, nineteen eighty seven. In the middle is the is the lady robot that looks like. A defective blow-up doll, or even a defective, uh, 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 what was the, um, around-the-world water ride that was, like, at Disney Epcot for a while? Around-the-world water Yeah, like, oh, am I thinking about the Hall of Presidents? I thought they had one that was, like, around-the-world, well, whatever. If she was a president, she would belong there. Therefore, she would look like she was from 1980s as well. <laughs> but then you look at the dinosaur, and what I mean by there's no theme to this sucker is that the dinosaur is literally a velociraptor straight from Jurassic Park. He is wearing a bellhop cap and a tuxedo vest and a white bow tie, and he bows to you. It's really weird. And it creeps me out. I mean, if this sucker goes haywire, you literally have a robot... <laughs> An angry Asian woman and a velociraptor in a bell hat, bellhop hat and tuxedo vest coming after you. See, we 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 don't call it news of the weird for nothing. It's weird, Not man. This is <laughs> it's stupid, but it's interesting. We weird. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to go ahead and conclude the news of the weird. Be sure to check that out at Newsmax.com. In Japan, robots run hotel from front desk to bellhops. And now, without further ado, we will get to... The News!
right. And even though it has not been 98 episodes, because I have run through news of the weird and talking about one of our Twitter followers at length and doing the email, I am going to go ahead and defer to Tim to start our actual news this time. So take it away, Tim! Which could be a bad thing, having me start this off, (laughs) but we will see. This is from movies.com. Very straightforward website here, movies.com. I think it might know a thing or two about uh, about movies. James Horner secretly wrote the Magnificent Seven score before his death. This is written by Peter Hall. That would be the late James Horner, the composer who did Titanic and Avatar, among other classic films that we have uh, come to know and love. And he actually scored The Silence of the Lambs, which we will be discussing a little later. And uh, this is actually pretty pretty interesting here. Oscar-winning composer James Horner died unexpectedly in June when his plane crashed, leaving behind not just an incredible legacy of film music, but apparently a few surprises. One of Horner's final completed scores was for Antoine Fuqua's boxing drama Southpaw, which hits theaters this week. It may not actually be his last, though. Horner had already committed to doing the score for Fuqua's next movie, the currently filming remake of The Magnificent Seven. Apparently, Fuqua got an emotional surprise recently when it was revealed that Horner, fueled by inspiration after reading the script, had secretly written the score before his fatal crash. Speaking to NPR, Fuqua broke the news during an emotional segment when talking about Southpaw, which he actually dedicated to the composer. Quote, James was an incredible human being. He was a filmmaker through and through. He was one of the most gentle people I've ever met. Even the way he spoke was very soft and thoughtful. He was magical. He had this childlike wonderment in his eyes. But he was an amazing artist, an amazing poet. I loved him, and we became friends. James was a family man. He loved his children. He called me on a Saturday after he watched Southpaw, and I said, quote, I don't have any money, end quote, because it wasn't a big-budget movie. And he said to me, quote, I love the movie. I love the father-daughter relationship. Don't worry about the money. I'm just going to do it, end quote. And he did it for nothing. He paid his crew out of his own pocket. And I just found out a few days ago, his team flew out here to Baton Rouge, and they brought me all the music for The Magnificent Seven. He already wrote it for me based on the script. He did it all off the script because he wanted to surprise me. I thought it was a gift or something. And they all came out here and said, quote, Antoine, James wrote the music for Magnificent Seven already, and it's just glorious, end quote. So that's my memory of James. End all quote. And I must say, uh, that is quite a special memory. So uh, that would be James Horner secretly wrote The Magnificent Seven. That's uh, why he did that as well. And uh, in other movie scoring news, The Hateful Eight was at the Comic-Con. That's right, THE Comic-Con a couple weeks ago. And during the panel, Quentin Tarantino announced who will be scoring the film. And that will be the one and only... Anino Morricone. Anino Morricone, if you are a film buff, a western buff, you know his name. He did A Fistful of Dollars for a few dollars more, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and Once Upon a Time in the West. He did all those movies of various genres up to Bugsy in the 90s, and he still scores stuff now. 
So he's a very dynamic and versatile movie composer. And so I think that is pretty damn cool. His first Western in 40 years. So it's going to be something grand. It's something exciting especially. Because one thing that I get out of the Sergio Leone Westerns is the score. And how it really stands out. And it really kind of puts the cherry on top of that is the Sergio Leone movie cake, I suppose. So I think it's something to look forward to, in addition to it being Quentin Tarantino's eighth movie, in addition to it being a Western, or his second Western, and in addition to it being shot on uh, on virtually, on virtually like uh, CinemaScope, I forget the actual camera that they're using to shoot on, but it's going to be a beautiful film uh, from a technical standpoint, acting standpoint, and just all around it seems like. So I am definitely looking forward to this movie now more than ever. Uh, and again, that was Anino Morricone will be scoring The Hateful Eight. Both, uh, uh, actually, all of that news was awesome, but I am definitely excited about The Hateful Eight news myself. Uh, all right, so I am going to only have a solo bit of news this evening um, for, for this episode. I mean, it is nighttime where I'm at. It's also my daughter's birthday today, but yeah, whatever. Uh, let's see here. TheGuardian.com by way of Henry Barnes. Mel Gibson to be creative advisor on Second World War film. The actor is to join 3D Chinese, Chinese epic The Bombing, which stars Bruce Willis as a U.S. fighter pilot protecting Chongqing against Japanese attack. That's right. You heard it. You heard correctly even. Mel Gibson has been employed as a consultant on The Bombing, a 3D Chinese blockbuster set during the world, Second World War, according to Variety. Quote, Mel is interested in what happened during that period of time and provided relevant, relevant suggestions on how to make the movie, said Xi Jingjiang, founder and CEO of Shanghai Kwai Lu Investment Group, the company funding the $65 million project. Quote, he is very insightful. End quote. I think this is actually really interesting that while he has, you know, he's he's definitely slowly but surely kind of coming back into the Hollywood fold. And I, and I mean, it is a snail space, but, um, you know, he was at the Mad Max premiere. Um, he's now, you know, he's been a little bit more visible lately. I know, of course, he's got Robert Downey Jr., uh, you know, backing him. Um, now, kind of returning the favor from when Mel Gibson actually got him back on his feet back in the day. Um, but I think it's interesting that while he's still somewhat of a pariah here, he's now going internationally to where new film markets are being developed and stuff and using all the expertise uh, that he has developed over the years and made lots of money for studios here and now helping studios elsewhere. So... What I'm wondering is, and Tim, this is, I would like to hear your opinion is, do you think that he will be able to replicate even a modicum of the success that he's had here internationally? I, you know, I don't know. It, it's going to be very interesting to see if he continues to do that. Did you say... Th- and I don't necessarily mean in front of the screen. I mean, because, you know, he is now uh, in his 60s or, or get, getting close to 60, I think, actually. And so, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying in front of the screen, but... Like, behind the scenes. It, what was the title of the movie again? Uh, it's called The Bombing. The Bombing. Okay. Yes. 
I, for some reason, thought it was called Hacksaw Ridge, which is a movie he's directing. But, um, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. I just think I, what, I think that's a cool thing for him to do. It, it shows you that he loves doing movies, and uh, it could be a money thing, who knows, or it could be, you know, something that he's passionate about. Maybe he, you know, loved the story. Maybe he, you know, Bruce Willis asked him. I don't know. I, I don't know. I think I think it's pretty cool. And if he decides to go over to the uh, go over to Asia and do some work over there, I don't see an issue with that. I think they would appreciate it and they would like it because over there, a big portion of the community is very into big Hollywood mega stars, and I really don't think they actually pay attention to controversy as much. You know, I mean, this is just him kind of consulting. But if he ever did kind of move on and do more stuff in Asia, I, it could be a pretty cool thing for him. I agree, and I, I mean, and it's also, I mean, because the the article here does reference, you know, that he is, you know, Gibson still attempting to rebuild his career after a 2006 uh, drunk driving arrest. I mean, that, so it literally, we're nine years now, we're nine years down the road. This isn't like it was yesterday. So, uh, but the but the plot actually sounds pretty interesting. The the because um, like I said, Bruce Willis was cast as the lead. And apparently he will play a U.S. fighter pilot who volunteers to help the people of the city of Chongqing uh, defend themselves from Japanese bombing raids. So, I don't know. The, the movie itself sounds pretty interesting. I wouldn't mind uh, actually seeing it. So, Anyways, so that's all my news. What do you got for us there? Tim, bring us home for the news. I don't know. I just hope Mel Gibson continues to do more work. I do too. I'm sorry. I, I'm I don't defend his actions in any way, shape, or form, but I believe personally. I think he's, um, you know, paid his debt to society, if you will, for lack of a better term, and would love to see him do more stuff. And there have been people out there that have done worse that are still acting now and getting paid millions of dollars. There are worse people out, or there are not necessarily worse people, but people out there. Uh, famous people, A-list celebrities that have done worse things. I don't know. I, I still think give the guy a break also. There you go. All right, sir, what do you got? Go ahead and bring us home. A couple more pieces here. SAG-AFRA says that it stopped the use of dangerous props on the set of Allegiant. And Allegiant is the third film. I guess it's also the third book of the Divergent series. Uh, the sequel, Insurgent, just came out. A couple months ago, I think, this is from Deadline.com, written by David Robb. For those of you who don't know, SAG-AFTRA are the big unions out here, acting unions. SAG and AFTRA said today that it was responsible for the removal of unsafe prop weapons from the set of Allegiant last month in Georgia, as Deadline reported Tuesday, metal clubs, axes, and machetes had been handed out to more than 100 extras for a fight scene involving 30 child actors during filming of the third film in the Divergent series. A whistleblower, alarmed that children had been put in the middle of the chaotic battle scene, told Deadline that calls to SAG and AFRA officials had proved unsatisfactory. But a call to LATSE Local 479 resulted in the weapons being rounded up. Today, however, SAG-AFRA issued a statement taking credit for ending the dangerous situation. 
And then continuing after the quotes here, uh, a little bit of background of what happened on June 17, 30 child actors, some as young as four years old, and more than 100 extras were on this Allegiant set in rural northwest Georgia. Prop masters handed out the heavy metal weapons, including axes, machetes, scythes, maces, steel pipes, hammers, heavy farm tools, and pieces of steel rebar that most of the adults would be wielding in the fight scene. As it unfolded, the children fled in all directions, chased by soldiers. Quote, I had to do a double take when the prop master passed out these weapons to the extras, end quote, the eyewitness wrote in an email to the film's safety consultant, quote, concerned, I went around and handled the weapons for myself and saw that they were steel and aluminum with bladed edges, and some were quite sharp, end all quotes. That is a big no-no in, uh, in the movie-making industry, so it's crazy that a big movie like this uh, you know, you know this this type of thing happened. Actually, normally this type of thing does happen, but I guess one would think not with a big film like this. But maybe, you know, really it could not be that big of a film as we think, and they had to do some cutback somewhere, so they cut back on the dangerous props and thought, you know what, I think wielding aluminum and hard steel would make more sense than foam and rubber. I don't know. Yay for whistleblowers in, in this sense. Um, next up for me, Michael Douglas news here. Yes, Michael Douglas, who is in the new Ant-Man movie that we will be talking about later on in the podcast. Michael Douglas says that American actors are too asexual and obsessed with social media. This is from Yahoo Movies and written by Man Kakachatorian. M-A-A-N-E. I apologize for that. Man or main. Michael Douglas thinks British and Australian actors are taking American jobs because Hollywood's current crop of stars aren't masculine enough for most film roles. Quote, In the U.S., we have this relatively asexual or unisex area with sensitive young men, and we don't have many Channing Tatums or Chris Pratt's while the Aussies do, end quote. He told The Independent, quote, it's a phenomena, end quote. Douglas said U.S. actors are too obsessed with social media, which causes them to focus more on their public image than on honing their craft. Quote, There's something going on with young American actors, both men and women, because the Brits and the Australians are taking many of the best American roles away from them. End quote. He said, quote, Clearly it breaks down on two fronts. In Britain, they take their training seriously, while in the States, we're going through a sort of social media image conscious thing rather than formal training. Many actors are getting caught up in this image thing, which is going on to affect their range. End all quotes. And I have to agree with them for the most part, though I don't know for sure because I'm not really involved in that particular aspect of the movie industry. But I must say that a lot of people are pissed off, uh, like Tom Hardy uh, going to play uh, Snake Plimp uh, Plimpkin, Snake Pliskin in the possible upcoming Escape from New York reboot, and it's happening all over the board. That you have a lot of people from Britain, especially Australia, coming over and playing these roles. 
Matt, what do you think? Do you think American male actors are just way too asexual and pussyfoots that they just worry about their image and just want to do the tweets and the Facebooks and the Instagrams? Kind of, but not 100%. I mean, I think it's a product of the environment. I mean, all we get around here is... You know, PC, 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 and then all of a sudden, people are standing around going, "Well, where are all the men at?" Um, you you PC'd the testosterone right out of them. I mean, what do you want? You know, so I don't necessarily think that they're gone or that they don't exist. I think that they are just worried that trying to be as manly as possible will result in negative feedback that they're not willing to take the heat for. And so we look outside and we see these guys, we see men acting like men from England and from Australia and, you know, the girls are going gaga over it. And so, I mean, I think I agree with him, but at the same time, I think there's caveats to it. So... There you go. Matt, you're just being way too PC, man. You're just being way too PC. I know. I need to go get a testosterone shot. I'll be right back. (laughs) 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 And I just want to mention this last thing because I've been meaning wanting to talk about it for a while and just going to spend a minute. From uh, the independent.co.uk, by the I mean www.independent.co.uk, Dustin Hoffman interview, The Graduate Talks, Decline of Cinema, Difficulties Finding Work, and Wanting to Be a Jazz Pianist. And this is a, uh, you know, it's it's an interview with Dustin Hoffman. And so it's a pretty lengthy, but I highly recommend it to all those of you who actually care about movies. Not saying, I don't mean that in a bad way, uh, because, I mean, as you know, you know, I'm sure, a lot of really good movies do come out especially the past couple years, we've been having seeing some really great films. But the bad thing about those films, what a lot of people don't realize, is that they're not really big movies. As in, they're not really being backed by a big studio. For example, Whiplash. So it's a Sony Classics film, but Sony didn't make Whiplash. Somebody from Sony went to a film festival, went to a market, a film market or something, saw the movie, loved it, and they bought the rights. Well, they put a bid in for the rights to distribute the movie, and then, you know, they won it, and then they got distributed uh, distribution rights. So a lot of companies buy the rights to these small, really good indie films to distribute them, not necessarily make them. And so in this article, or in this interview, Dustin Hoffman talks about The Graduate, where The Graduate was backed by a major studio, and they had like something around along the lines of like 100 days to make this film. And it was, you know, it's a smaller comedy, but it's a very nuanced, very funny, and a well-made comedy. It was directed by Mike Nichols. And movies like that aren't made anymore, and he is absolutely right. You know, because no studio wants to really take the time or waste a budget on a movie that might only make $20 million at the box office. And nobody really wants to invest in a movie that would only be, you know, a million dollars or so. And so it's easier for people to go out there and make these indie movies and have these big studios watch them, 
like them, or maybe see that it's profitable in some way, and then buy it to distribute it. And then the uh, the conversation in the article kind of goes to his current standing as an actor and how it is very difficult for him to find acting roles, especially lead actor roles, because for movies, they keep looking for a particular type of actor to be in these films. And because they're not making these smaller, well-crafted films that actually pay well, instead, you know, they're making the Marvel movies, they're making the Bonds, they're making these big-budget movies... That's not Dustin Hoffman. He wants to do movies with nuance, with acting, you know, like what he did with The Graduate. And, you know, again, big studios aren't making those films where he can earn his money. So he's having to do these smaller films that he either directs or writes or co-stars in. And uh, again, it's very interesting. I highly recommend this article. It's kind of him, not necessarily complaining, but just being a little critical. But I think... He's speaking the truth. Again, this is from the independent.co.uk, Dustin Hoffman interview, The Graduate Talks Decline of Cinema, Difficulties Finding Work, and Wanting to Be a Jazz Pianist. And that's all my news. Well, excellent news segment. Okay, so we are going to go ahead and try out our new bonus segment. It is called, Was It Worthy? Was it worthy, was it worthy to do this new segment? <laughs> All right, so again, we are going to, we pick, we pick a movie that doesn't, age is irrelevant. We look at uh, other movies that came out that year and other nominees for the same award that this particular movie one and we decide was it worthy and again it could be it could be a good award or even a bad award so like a razzie or something in this particular instance just to get it kicked off we did the silence of the lambs this is the most recent film to sweep the oscars it won best picture best director best actor best actress and best screenplay um and all right so i'm sorry best adapted screenplay to be specific. And this, of course, is the thriller film stars Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster. It is actually a sequel to the 1986 Michael Mann film Manhunter. Uh, it was directed by Jonathan Dem- uh, Demi as well, and it's based on the novel of the same name. We're following Miss Clarice Starling as she is pulled from her training in the FBI and has to go and assist on a case that is requiring her to go and talk to another serial killer. Now, she's she's tasked with talking to this guy because they're trying to catch a current serial killer. And it's kind of interesting because the only reason this thing happens is because the, the serial killer they're after in this movie, Buffalo Bill, um, a, a kidnaps a U.S. senator's daughter. And it's, I don't know, I think there's just kind of a small undertone that kind of says if you're not important, then, or if your parents aren't important, then you're going to die at the hands of a serial killer. Kind of weird, I don't know. Um, this movie uh, had to compete against Beauty and the Beast for Best Picture, Bugsy, JFK and the Prince of Tides. Other films that came out that year also include um, 
The Fisher King, Boys in the Hood, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. So there were a lot of really good movies out there this year, uh, that particular year, and quite a lot of interesting performances and stuff. Um, I think that this movie, in short, despite the field of movies that were available and the actual nominees, this was truly worthy of the award that it won in terms of Best Picture. Uh, also for Best Director, also Best Adapted Screenplay, I think. In, and I think even Anthony Hopkins, for sure. I think if this had been any other year for Nick Nolte um, or Robin Williams, I think they might have been able to pull out the win for their particular performances there. Um, but, man, um, just unbelievable unbelievable performances iconic truly iconic today if you say fava beans and chianti uh people know what you're talking about if you go people know what the hell you're talking about they know what you're doing i mean it's so you literally just can't get on it uh without without knowing it and i personally believe that yes it was worthy what do you think tim i like that you can't get on it Without knowing it. (laughs) That can imply to many things in life. This is true. Can't get on it until you know it. So, yes, I've seen all these movies before, other than The Silence of the Lambs, Beauty and the Beast, which was uh, one of the first animated movies nominated for Best Picture, Bugsy, JFK, and The Prince of Tights. And they're all great films. Beauty and the Beast, beautiful film, perfect movie. Bugsy is a really good movie. JFK is a really good movie. But there is one movie... Actually, no, there are, there are two movies that stood the test of time, as in you can watch it now and still be in awe. And that's very important to go back and look at some of these movies and think, God, really, what, was it worthy? Because the movie Love Story that came out in the 70s uh, is a great one to, that would actually would be a great one to discuss sometime because love story at the time you know it was the movie for a generation you know young people loved the movie because it was about a uh, a guy and the girl that the families didn't want them to be to be together but you know their love was so strong and so passionate and so goddamn sexy that they had to be together and so the movie went on to be a, a massive success you watch the movie now and you just kind of want to smack your face multiple times because you know it just really doesn't hold up it's a little hammy it's very hammy it's corny and all that stuff and i'm not saying these movies are to that caliber but they don't add up to the same effect now as say the science of the lambs or even beauty and the beast does and again bugsy jfk and prince of tides are all really good movies but i can go back and watch beauty and the beast and love it. You know, it's it's so beautifully done. And same thing with Science of the Lambs. However, I do think the Science of the Lambs is worthy, still worthy, of winning Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress. And I gotta say that uh, I'm very glad that Jack Palance won for Best Supporting Actor in City Slickers. That was a fantastic awards uh, acceptance speech, if you guys remember that one, doing the one-handed push-up. I do. 
remember that that is not do one handed push ups that would not end uh, uh, well. The reason why the signs of the lambs works over all these movies is that there are many levels to this movie. I mean, characteristically, technically, and symbolically, it worked on all these levels. For example, the various ways to get the audience to connect with Claire Reese. You see this with a lot of movies that can stand the test of time. A movie where you feel for the characters and you're there with them. For example, how uh, Clarice is treated by other people, you know, via the way they look at her or they watch her as she passes by, is very subtle. Very subtle techniques to get the audience to feel compassion, to feel something towards Clarice Starling. And I mean that Clarice is, is a woman in a man's world. And you can just see it throughout the movie, just all the guys and people are just looking at her, either judging her or looking at her like, Oh, she is fine. She is good-looking, and they want to be with her. Just stuff like that, and it's very interesting. On a technical level, I'm going through the levels here. On a technical level, an example would be the camera work. You know, the camera follows Clarice downstairs into the FBI building at the beginning of the film. The camera follows her again into the chamber where... Uh, Hannibal Lecter is being held, and the camera follows her down into Buffalo Bill's basement throughout the end of the movie during the climax. So there's a lot of following going down into depths of all these different aspects of the film, the aspect of the FBI. And again, you know, uh, what Matt was talking about, like, oh, which is definitely symbolism that, uh, oh, you have to be a senator's daughter for you to survive one of these things, to be found and actually there to be, you know, some kind of move for people to find this girl. That kind of ties in with the camera work, how the camera work is following her going into the depths of the FBI, going into the depths of, uh, the Han- of meeting Hannibal Lecter, that character, and going into the depths to meet Wild Bill. Because there's a lot of things that kind of correlate and tie out. Characteristically... There's also the bond between Clarice and Hannibal. You know, both can relate to being judged and excluded. You know, Hannibal for being a murderer <laughs> and Clarice for being a woman in a, in, a, in a judging man's world, as well as, you know, losing her father and being a failed adopted child and all that stuff. So, characteristically, the movie works over time. And this movie is also manipulative. In the best ways possible. And it is a feat for such a manipulative film to hold up for so long because we've seen this movie before. You know, we know when the twists and the turns are going to happen. We know the direction this film is going. But you can watch it now. You can watch it for the 5th, 6th, 7th, 20th time. And it still kind of sweeps you away. I've seen this movie multiple times before. I haven't seen it in a few years. I watched it again last night. And it probably startled me more last night than it ever had. Because as you get older, you start learning about things. As you get older, you have kids. And so you can kind of connect to, you know, losing your your, your child or stuff like that. That also attributes to this movie kind of aging well over time. And I really don't know how you can say this with all these other movies. Yes, they're fine movies, but they don't really have all these pieces that kind of fit together and work over time. So, yes, The Silence of the Lambs is a worthy film to have won countless number of awards. 
All right. Outstanding. Well, I'm glad that that worked out pretty well. Again, we, we did pick an easy one. But, it you know, just to give you an idea how it would work in the future. So if you liked it, please let us know. Tweet us uh, at the SLS cast or send us an email to the show at SLScast.com and let us know if you like it. And, and also if you've got ideas for this category or any other category or just anything else you want to say, um, feel free to do so. And without further – oh, we're not going to have – due to time constraints and travel and everything, we are not going to have a bonus segment next week. So no bonus segment next week. However, we will still do movies next week. And of course, the movies! Yes, so the first, uh, we've got three movies as normal. We've got uh, Ant-Man and then Minions, both were in the theaters. And then, of course, Slow West, which was on Amazon Instant. Um, Where do you want to start there, Tim? How about Slow West? Slow West. All right, 25, 25, good Lord, 2015 action western film written and directed by John McClane. Uh, and in, in this is his directorial debut, by the way. It stars Michael Fassbender, Cody Smith-McPhee, and Ben Mendelsohn. Um, we have a guy who comes to us from Scotland. He is a highborn lad who is following the love of his life after a tragic incident causes him uh, to be separated from her. Uh, Michael Fassbender plays a... Um, I don't necessarily want to say reformed bad guy, but definitely a uh, bounty hunter with a conscience. With a conscience who befriends young Jay Cavendish in hopes of being led straight to the prey that he wants, which is which he's going to get a reward for, who also happens to be uh, the love of Jay Cavendish's life and her father due to said unfortunate happenings in Scotland. Um... This is a really interesting movie and and really weird for me mainly because it is it is slow but not slow um it's a very interesting story that is in some ways kind of dull it is standard cinema cinematography fare for a western which means gorgeous Hands down, it's nearly impossible not to have a to have a ugly uh, western, and yet it's got this really just these di- and and it's almost like every character. Well, the two main characters are definitely dynamic in a way, and yet not dynamic at all. So it's it's really really kind of weird, um, and both well done. But sad, and yet not sad, and yet kind of pathetic, and not pathetic. In terms of characters, not in terms of bad writing or anything like that. So, it's really, really hard for me to rate this movie, because there are things that I really like about it, and simultaneously, I wish weren't there. But, in terms of all of the things that it's trying to do, um, 
I have to agree with Tim, who I'm sure will reiterate this. I just, you know, the, our flow, our narrative flow happens to be that I go first. But, um, you know, he says this is a good outing. He's going to say that this is a good outing for a first-time director. And I wholeheartedly agree with his sentiment in that regard. Um, it's not a perfect movie, though. There are issues with the movie. And I think that the, especially a lot of people who will view the movie will definitely be thrown off by um, the final act of the film. Um, that being said, though, it is still worth watching. It is still worth watching. And if nothing else, as just a character study. Just true character study, especially between... Cody Smith McPhee and Michael Fast Michael Fassbender. So I'm gonna give this one 3.75 and say Go Tim, go. Now who has the dizzying intellect, Tim? I know, now, yeah. Now it's, who has it? It's me. It's, it's, it's me this time. It's still me, I'm sure. Um <laughs> This is a three point five movie for me. It's like it, like what Matt was saying, the movie kind of teeter totters between a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, like, the movie starts, and you really aren't sure what you're getting yourself into. It has a really interesting premise. The basis of the guy, you know, being led on by this rough-around-the-edges dude who you really don't know his about his past, but you know his past is rough. You, you've seen that story before, but not quite like this. And the movie really doesn't focus on any one thing for too long, which can be a good thing, but then it could be kind of frustrating at times because there's a point at the beginning of the movie where the characters kind of go off on their adventure together. And I'm sure because of maybe they're, they're confined to a smaller budget, they weren't able to afford to do maybe a whole bunch of other stuff. But for a low-budget movie, they did a lot of... They did do some really cool things. It's just like I said, they just really didn't stay put and kind of really played around with things for not too long of a time. And I think that's what I really wanted to see them do more so of. Um, Like, there's this great little scene where they go into a little general store, and I'll just say something happens. Like, that, that was a really good scene. And then you see the repercussions of that scene later on, uh, and and it's just it's kind of it's fun and it's entertaining and so you can really tell that the director John McLean has a lot of talent and that's why I said that the movie was overall kind of frustrating at times but it was still really good and I think it's all because it, it just kind of moved to hopped along to one thing to another too quickly until the ending. For me, the movie had a nice little slowdown, not necessarily slowdown period, but the movie to me flowed perfectly at the very end. It was well edited and well shot and well thought out, and it had a great execution of it. And the ending was very surprising. It was something I wasn't expecting, and I thought it was brilliantly done, and I just kind of wished... Earlier on in the movie, it was as fun. There were tricks happening earlier on in the film. Not saying that tricks to rival what the surprises were at the end of the film, but something different from what they did. Because you start the movie and you think, oh god, this is going to be a long, boring film. And it's not, because it moves. It just kind of moves through the story a little too quickly. So you really don't develop 
really anything for the characters until, of course, the ending climax. So, again, 3.5 stars. I thought it was a beautiful film for the most part. Great start off for uh, John McLean's career. And, of course, Michael Fassbender is always a treat to watch on screen, as well as all the other actors are really good as well. Ben Mendelsohn, you've seen him in so much stuff. He's in this movie as well. Go have fun. Amazon Prime for free. If you have Prime, do it. Cool. All right, that leaves us with Ant-Man and Minions, sir. Where do you want to go next? Minions. All right, Minions, 2015, American 3D computer animated family comedy film. Uh, it is also a prequel or spinoff, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, to the Despicable Me franchise. Um, <clears throat> this is a uh, um, origin story of the Minions and also explains, uh, well, you know what a prequel is. So it basically <laughs> explains their origins and leads up to, um, th- you know, Early preceding events to Despicable Me. Um, this is definitely a movie that kids are going to enjoy. Great family fun. And I was not really sure about this movie when I first heard about it. And then I saw the trailer. And the trailer really got me excited for it. Because it's like, okay, this seems to make sense. This is a great way to explain what is happening here and how this and how this is going to play out for the minions so i was like okay cool now i'm at least excited to see the film i still don't know if it's going to be any good but i'm now excited to see it so i take my middle daughter out on a daddy daughter date and so we go out and go see the movie and then right from the get-go the universal thing uh the universal logo comes around and the minions are singing the universal logo and I laughed very, very hard at that. Um, I subsequently did not laugh that hard at anything after that. Um, the movie is just really, really disappointing. Um, there are a few, there are a few laughs to be had. Nothing that's like super funny. And the the worst part of it is, is that instead of just picking up where the trailer leaves off to go ahead and get into the film and actually delve into things and and have fun with it in terms of really showing off the what the minions were capable of and the kind of misadventures they can get into on their own they literally spend the first 15 minutes of the film just doing a rehash of the trailer that's like extended and I, and so it just completely gets you off on the wrong foot. And then by the time it really gets going, they don't do any proper exploitation of it. Um, and it just ceases really being any kind of fun. Uh, Sandra Bullock does a pretty good job. Um, John Hamm, Michael Keaton, um, they, they all, I mean, the... the the work that they do is fine, but it's nothing impressive. There's nothing really that grabs your attention and holds it. Um, but your kids are going to love it, and the kids will laugh and have a good time with it. For me, though, two stars. Did not like it. And if you have to, throw a buck at it when it comes out on Redbox. That's all I got. Go ahead, sir. Five-star movie. I'm kidding. It's not a five-star movie. But I will say I thought the humor in this movie 
is some of the wittiest and funniest stuff I have ever seen in any animated film. Uh, I'm talking about the sheer amount of wit that kind of happens, especially in the background, is so well done. But goddamn, is this movie exhausting as hell. When I first saw the Minions trailer, I loved it. You know, I I kind of I think I I got a little I had a little tear coming down my eye because I thought finally a movie that is all comedy. There's probably not going to be any you know the mushy shit that Pixar is shoving down our throats with every movie. You know, it's just going to be a fun, entertaining little adventure film just starring basically the Three Stooges. And so that's how I prepared myself going into the movie. I mean, that's what I expected was basically a Three Stooges film or a monkey's film. In fact, in the movie, they kind of do a little riff off the monkey's theme song. And instead of doing, hey, 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 we're the monkeys, they're singing, hey, 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 we're the minions. And it's it's clever. And I'm, whenever I say wit, the movie has a lot of wit to it. But it, it's I mean it's mainly cleverness to it. Like whenever they're describing one of the minions, they're calling him a bald child with jaundice, which I thought was very funny. But if he wasn't paying attention, you would have totally missed it because it was a news anchor saying it during a during a little newscast that happens sometime during the movie. So a lot of interesting stuff like that. The reason why I say it's exhausting is because the Three Stooges had their vignettes, their very short vignettes. So you couldn't really get tired of them. If you expanded those vignettes, you would have gotten sick and tired of their antics. And in some way, I kind of think that's why the Fairly Brothers Minions movie, or Minions, the Fairly Brothers Three Stooges movie worked on some levels is because they broke the movie into three vignettes instead of it being one completely continuous story. The Monkees had a half-hour-long TV show. And even the Marx Brothers, they had their movies. But it was, again, a little little bit of... Uh, it was different kind of humor. It, it flowed a little bit better. And so I think the Minions would work out better, other than them having a one-and-a-half-hour-long movie, is having maybe like a 20-minute specials every so often. You know, they can be doing the same exact type of thing... But make it 20 minutes. Because seriously, I will watch anything these guys do. They are fucking hilarious. But stretch that out to an hour and a half, and it's exhausting. So I give this one 3.25. I did enjoy it, but again, it's just a little over long. And it could have used a little bit more umph from supporting characters. Maybe even more of a... I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But 3.25 for me. All right. Well, then that's going to leave us with Ant-Man. 2015 American super film, superhero film uh, based on the Marvel Comics character of the same name. Uh, let's see here. It is starring Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Corey Stoll, Bobby Cannavale, Michael Pena, um, Michael Douglas, of course, Judy Greer, and Anthony Mackie, Wood Harris, uh, T.I. Harris so yeah I mean this is really good stuff uh, screenplay though I was not aware of this at first Paul Rudd Adam McKay Edgar Wright Joe Cornish holy crap uh, it's directed by Peyton Reed and for me an utter surprise I could not believe how much I enjoyed this film and I think most people are either very skeptical of it or going in with some trepidation and I think that that's why 
while it was number one at the box office, it wasn't. It was definitely wasn't blowing up the world. Um, I think also though that's a bit of a crutch because people aren't really giving it the benefit of the doubt, so their expectations are lower. Which doesn't necessarily mean that it's just that it truly is an amazing movie. I think it's just going to really surprise people who would otherwise pass on a hero the size of an ant, right? Um, (laughs) The movie is about a thief, a, a, you know, Robin Hood-style thief by the name of Scott Lang. And he is trying to get... um, He's trying to figure out a way to get to his... to make enough money to see his daughter again... And he, of course, inadvertently uh, is entangled with uh, Hank Pym, who is, the, of course, the inventor of the Ant-Man serum and Ant-Man suit. Um, this, was, this was not an accidental entanglement in order for him to meet up with Hank Pym, but definitely uh, kind of an audition, if you will. They need to actually stop Pym's technology from getting into the wrong hands. Of course, his company has been slowly, uh, was taken away from him over the years. And the new CEO, played by Corey Stoll, is, has actually gotten hold of the technology and is now trying to work it out. Um, through some misadventures and everything, uh, his daughter, uh, I'm sorry, Hank Pym's daughter played by Evangeline Lilly, is entered into the picture, and the three of them must figure out a way to outsmart the evildoers and, of course, redeem uh, Scott's life and everything like that. Now, the film itself is... I don't want to say that it's self-aware, but I think the brilliance, the sheer brilliance of this film was in the casting. Because... The writing is decent. It's not, I mean, it, it's not that it's great writing in any way, shape, or form. It's very decent writing, extremely competent, and it's not like it's, you know, that, that it, we should slam it or anything. But I think the brilliance of this movie was definitely in the casting. Paul Rudd is someone who is just every man enough that you would not expect him to be a superhero or superhero quality, but at the same time brings about um, kind of like the everyman's version of Tony Stark who, with wit and sarcasm, who is a smart guy, but definitely not as gifted or as suave as someone like Tony Stark, for example. Then you have uh, the casting of Evangeline Lilly and Michael Douglas, who are actually kind of the dramatic side, just enough that you're willing to take the plot seriously. And yet, even though there are things that need to be taken seriously in order to accept this film as a true superhero film, they still understand the whole point that it's a guy that shrinks down, right? So on the flip side of that, you have casting choices like T.I. and Michael Pena, who are there as comic relief to be on the other side of Paul Rudd. So that's where the brilliance is because you have this stuff that you know is stupid and snarky and yet because of the way it's delivered, 
you still find yourself laughing and having a good time with it. Enough so that when the lighthearted humor and action takes place, you know, like the Thomas the Tank Engine thing from the trailer, it's still entertaining. Because now they've given a way for it to be set up so that even though it's ludicrous, you're still willing to take it seriously. On the flip side of that, the whole reason this ludicrous thing is happening is because of the things that were serious in nature that came about from events revolving around Hank Pym and Hope Van Dyne, which are Michael Douglas and Evangeline Lilly, respectively. And their, uh, and their ability to take the serious side of the stuff and actually make it work. Outside of that, there are, of course, there's it, it kind of a lame uh, bad guy in this one. I can't, I, I can't say that it's not. Um, so there are things that, that balance out that really make it good and things that you have to sit there and say, it's really not the best movie. But I honestly had a great time and truly, truly, really enjoyed it. So I've got to give this one 4.25. It is certainly flawed, especially with a very one-dimensional bad guy. But the casting overall really brings this movie home and allows you to enjoy it for what it needs to be. And that is a good superhero movie. Bring us home, Tim. I have a feeling this is probably not going to be very good. Uh, I thought it was good. It's just, so Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish wrote the script originally, and, and Edgar Wright was going to direct it. Well, the asshole, who's grow, actually growing to be an asshole, is Kevin Figg, wanted Edgar Wright to know that he was going to take control of the movie during post-production. Edgar Wright was saying, hey, look, I want this to be kind of not necessarily a standalone movie from the Avengers, but I don't want this to feel like every other Avengers Marvel movie where it's a setup for another Avengers film. And so I, that's that's a rumor of what happened, and it's probably what happened because that's kind of what's been going on with all these other directors who have not been uh, taking on uh, Marvel movies because of the, this reason. So Edgar Wright left, and that pissed off so many people, but Paul Rudd and uh, Mike McKay, uh, not Mike McKay, Adam McKay came on to write, and so I think what you have for this movie is that you have uh, Paul Rudd and Adam McKay's kind of dialogue, but then you have Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish's overarching uh, a story and like the wow ideas that he came up with. And so the the thing that I didn't like about it is that I saw the distinct flavors that were being presented in this movie. I got into the wow, but I couldn't help feeling, God, that is, that feels like Edgar Wright. And then with some of the comedy, it just felt a little forced. And I thought Paul Rudd looked the part, but he didn't act the part. Michael Pena and I thought his dialogue and his stuff was pretty funny but I thought you know again some of the humor was just a little bit forced but as the movie went on his character kind of grew on me and his comedy stole the show and it, it was fun and when the movie was fun it was a lot of fun but when the movie was kind of annoying and a little frustrating or I, when I was a little frustrated with it it wasn't as annoying nor was it as frustrating as, say, Age of Ultron or Iron Man 3 or Thor 2, you know. So this was definitely more fun and I think more inventive. So I would give this movie probably three and a half. So I did enjoy it. Pretty positive all the way around for Ant-Man, so that's 
that's surprising. I'm, I'm happy with that, for sure. Uh, so next week, the movies are going to be What We Do in the Shadows, available on VOD. Uh, and also The Death of Superman Lives, also VOD. However, Joe Dirt 2 apparently is available via Amazon Prime, uh, but also is free God. on Crackle. <laughs> what? So it's not on Amazon Prime? Oh, I wasn't ugging about that. I was ugging about... Joe, oh. the movie itself. No, I, th- it's on, I think oh. it's free on Crackle for a limited it is time. Free, yeah, it's free on Crackle through the end of the month. Oh, okay. So yeah. today's the 21st. The recording date is the 21st. So by the time you're hearing this, you'll probably have about a week or so left. But it's uh, definitely free on Crackle for the rest of the month. Joe Dirt 2. And you, you're going to uh, want to watch it for free. Beautiful loser. For sure. Yes, you are definitely going to watch this for free. Do not pay for this movie. I've already seen it. Do not pay for this movie. I will expand on it next week. So, uh, so again, what we do in the shadows, the death of Superman lives and Joe dirt Two, beautiful loser. Um, the first two on VOD, second one free on crackle. So I believe that's it. And we're ready for the spiel. Are we not, sir? Spiel on the music you've been listening to as always has been brought to you by our music partners, cries of solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and facebook.com, both slash cries of solace. As for us, we of course are the SLS cast and you can find us at slscast.com. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can of course get aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter. If that is your heart's desire. And of course you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Michael Fassbender, I get to say this. What I find really interesting is to try and mix it up, to push myself and try different things. I don't want to stay in my comfort zone. I want to take risks and keep myself scared. And this is Tim saying thank you for listening to either one of these titles for this episode. Betting Sections to the Wind or... PCing the testosterone right out of podcasting. Take care, guys, and talk to you next week. again for listening to the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com at the SLS cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>